How's it going? Hi. I'm Alex. I'm Val. We're going to talk about Sopranos. Yeah, as usual. As well, usual. Today we're talking about season two, episode five, Big Girls Don't Cry. Very exciting in yeah. terms of the crew that comes on. First, Terrence Winter, mm-hmm. writing credit, mm-hmm. who then goes on to be one of the main writers for this show. And one of the main writers for HBO, kind of one of the like... Totally. Yeah, it's actually interesting. So this one's also directed by Tim Van Patten, who we've been mentioning a bunch. But it's crazy with Terrence Winter, because I was looking up the stuff that he did before The Sopranos, and it's actually like kind of unremarkable in a way, considering what he went on to do after writing for this show. Because after this, obviously, he went on to kind of like create Boardwalk Empire. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, do do all sorts of stuff. I think he was actually on vinyl as well, kind of like brought on for that in the beginning. But he's, you that, know. That show sucks. <laughs> Ooh, Val's opinions come out early today. Well, anyways, today That's we're going to, we just watched the episode. Yeah. We're, we're going to sit down and it. talk about it. I just realized there was one thing that I wanted to look up, but I guess it's too late. Guess it's too late. Yeah. What was it? Ozzy and Harriet. Ozzy and Harriet. Well, let us know if you know what Ozzy and Harriet is, because we don't. Oh, yeah, I was going to look up more on uh, Lou Costello, too. Yeah. Oh, well. Sorry, guys. Too late. If our trivia was better, we could go do a more thorough analysis as this went yeah. on. But but we don't tend to do that anyways. So. Yeah. So, unfortunately, our ignorance is going to get the best of us on drawing incredibly profound um, Ozzy and Harriet and Lou Costello observations. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. I was kind of thinking, <clears throat> let's start by talking about the title. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Let's talk about it. So, Big Girls Don't Cry. Mm-hmm. It's a Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Our trivia is um, brutal today. But we hear it playing in the background when um, Tony and Polly and... Is that when Johnny Sack shows up? No, the early, earlier mm. in the episode when they're just at New Vesuvio's. That's right. The first time. Well, Tony's, yeah, Tony's there, and that's the time when uh, Artie and Charmaine are talking about how they've not paid their tab a few times in a row. Yeah, that exactly. Time, right. Exactly. So we hear it playing in the background, but I think like with a lot of our female characters and even some of our male characters, there's a lot that deals with kind of like being strong in different moments mm-hmm. and then also being um, vulnerable or... Um, emotional in other moments and so I feel like there's a couple instances for sure Um, the one that kind of well the couple that kind of stand out to me are the wife slash girlfriend of Dominic the um, Mm -hmm. whatever it was whorehouse owner (laughs) (laughs) Um, she's kind of and you know it's reflected back by comments from a few characters, she's actually the one that's kind of standing up to, yeah. um, at least Christopher, more so than Dominic is, right? Yeah. Like, she's the one who's like, you're not providing us with any security, da-da-da-da. Um, and then later we hear, like, Tony says to Furio, what did I tell you? And he's like, the wife is also, yeah. like, is also an issue, yeah. not just Dominic, right? So then he acts in a certain way. We can talk more about that scene after, but... Um, the other one, you know, is with when we get a short, I love when we get Artie and, and Charmaine. Yeah. Um, but we also see her kind of in this role where Artie's kind of a doofus a lot. He just kind of, you know, like he, even though he tries to stand up to Tony about hiring Furio, he kind of, you know, concedes. And then we see Furio in the kitchen making mozzarella. Right. Um, 
you know, Charmaine's the one who's like, they haven't paid their tab. This is the third time or whatever, yeah. three times this week. And Artie's kind of like, ah, oh, I can't turn down a four top or whatever he says. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we see her. But then we see a character like Melfi, who is reflecting yeah. a lot on kind of these ideas of like childishness or being a child, right? Like she talks about mm-hmm. a time when she was a young girl watching Wizard of Oz. She refers mm. to Tony as a little boy. So there's kind of something there. And it is, I mean, like the, even just the statement, like big girls don't cry, right? Like it kind of says like in order to be an adult or in order to like grow up. And there's also, there's a few times actually where characters are told to grow the fuck up yeah. or grow up. Um, but there is this kind of differentiation between like what it means to be an adult and what it means to be a child. And one of them doesn't allow this kind of emotionality. Um, or I don't know, like base kind of responses to things. Yeah. And we see Christopher, of course, like showing a lot of emotion, which makes him, you know, it makes him reflect on what it meant to be a child and yeah. his father, right? It puts him into this position mm-hmm. that he's not necessarily comfortable with definitely he's kind of playing the other part playing this adult guy yeah you know um we see tony grappling with issues of you know when he was a child he finds out things about his own father um mm-hmm. that he used to have these panic attacks whatever yeah. uh, i'm trying to think if there was another example well i guess we also see so in terms of again the title we also see Tony thinking a lot about his or more about his kids than we see him think about them sometimes. Yeah. Like when he throws the phone. <laughs> That's an amazing scene. Um, AJ's kind of standing there being yeah. AJ, right? And, you know, so Tony has this moment. Well, she of, says, why don't you grow the fuck up? Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes and he says, <laughs> basically him growing up is him going and talking to AJ and saying, got a job at Radio Shack product tester testing that phone for durability that he walks away yeah but but, (laughs) that's it but you could tell like his intention was to kind of like smooth it over with aj like he didn't want aj to see him act that way and he he says that later on like he wants to direct his anger towards the people that actually deserve it right Um, you also see how out of place he is though in terms of acting as an adult sure and in terms of yeah him resolving that conflict or resolving that issue he's just pretty incapable of it yeah but he's also concerned with like when he's on his boat with Irina and they he grabs that guy by the balls and he's worried he's gonna get in trouble he's like I don't want the kids to find out Mm -hmm. he's like Carmel like Carm finding it like Carm knowing who I was on the boat with that's usual or whatever but the kids so he's really concerned. We also have ducks in that scene too. Mm-hmm. So, and then he talks about how he's like right. avoiding his pool. So for me, that was like. And there has been a connection of the ducks to his family. That's mm-hmm. how he analyzes it. Mm-hmm. In, or sorry, well, that's how it is analyzed in the first episode. But the fact that Irene is feeding them these cheesy poofs or whatever, mm-hmm. which <laughs> and is that, like a childish food. Yeah, and also, but it's also something toxic for the ducks, and that he kind of flips out over that. There's yeah. an element he's of he's like, you should be feeding them bread and corn. Yeah, <laughs> again, he's pretty out of his element. Yeah, but he's clearly concerned about like this toxicity reaching his kids, mm-hmm. which is interesting because there's not many people that Tony's that concerned about the toxic element of his actions reaching. No, no, but I saw it like more in this episode than I have in past. So there's definitely some level of connection there. Um, like what it means to be a child, what it means to grow up. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was kind of my first about the title. 
That's thing. Was there anything else that the title made you? Well, it made me think a lot about Christopher and his actions. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, he's somebody who we actually see kind of break down crying. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's very unusual for his character. And I think that this episode in particular really expands on Christopher as a character. Mm. And I feel like when he's acting, we see kind of an affinity for that craft and an aptitude for it that's Mm. kind of interesting. It's something that actually he does kind of connect with. And when he has that Rebel Without a Cause uh, scene, he's kind of like injecting realism into the performance that's otherwise like kind of a joke almost like the other yeah. people are just like not really capable of having any realism when in their he does performance that slow fake zipper the f- slow fake zipper what's the slow fake zipper well at the end he's like doing up the coat he says oh, he was right. always cold and he's like so carefully yeah. zipping up like yeah. this like very realistic seeming zipper that's yeah. not really there that's right oh i actually i missed that yeah, it's a good one. but it's it's interesting like he has like that level of realism and attention to detail and being able to draw on his own life. Like it actually makes the performance of the others in the class a lot better too. Like Mitch, who's like so he's kind of wooden as he comes out so at first. Funny. And then he's kind of confused because he doesn't know how to respond to that level of performance from Christopher. But then he actually gets a lot better. So mm-hmm. it actually kind of like elevates everybody. But I feel like the key scene for Christopher's arc in this episode is when Adriana is saying things like, Acting is mostly feelings. Mm-hmm. And she also talks unless about... Unless you're driving unless a you're car driving, having a sword fight. Unless you're driving a car or sword fighting. And for me, that's exactly right. She yeah. kind of hits the nail on the head because that's what Christopher's looking for when he's trying to change his scene. He asks for a scene with no dialogue. Yeah. You know, jumping out of the car before it goes off a cliff. Well, that's also Christopher's job. He drives Tony around. That's and right. And he fights. That's his role so, in the, in the movie. Yeah, he's drawing from his life. He's not expanding. He's not being curious to get outside of that extremely kind of basic level. And he doesn't have to deal with his feelings. No. And he kind of just wants to continue that. The scary thing for him is that when he gets out of that world, he's actually kind of talented at it and has, there's something deeper there. But I think it also scares him. Mm-hmm. And in the end, that's why when he actually reflects on it, his reaction is to take his screenplay, take all the writing, take the floppy disks and throw them out. I like how in that scene where he throws out his scripts and his floppy disks, you kind of, you think maybe at first he's just gonna like start something new, right? Like he throws away this, he looks at his script, mm-hmm. when I bark, you bite, or yeah. whatever. Um, or when I, when you, you bark, bark, I, I bite. bite. Um, and he throws those away, but then you see him go to his computer and you have this moment where you're like, that's it, he's gonna start writing something real. You know, like he's gonna right. start, um, you know, and he like, you, you, I don't know, you have this moment of hope for Christopher. You have lots yeah. of moments of hope for Christopher yeah. as the series goes yeah. on. But then he takes out the floppy disk, chucks those yeah. away. And he ha- and then he has he has this very dramatic scene of yeah. this slow pan down this dark hallway, right? Yeah. Like the garbage yeah. hallway. And he's limping because he has this foot injury. Yeah. The, the end credit music is coming into the, yeah. um, you know, coming into your ear shot. Um the sound effect that comes with him throwing his stuff into the garbage is like a little bit over exaggerated. It's like a sound of breaking glass, mm-hmm. which doesn't really make that much sense. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but it is this like overly dramatic scene where he does have a lot of feeling, right? Totally. Like he is, he's making, it's a character point for yeah. him, right? Like he's trying to put that 
part of him yeah. behind himself. Well, and interestingly, too, it. he actually throws everything into a white garbage bag and then throws it into the dumpster, all black garbage bags. Mm. And when I was watching, I said, I'm not going to say anything about color. But then, but then you did. There were some really good ones in this one. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to leave color alone, but the blacks and whites, they've there's, there's really some things going on, actually. And actually, it's a quick shot, but you see that garbage bag full of that possible side of Christopher sitting in the dumpster, which is such like yeah. a literal image. But it is surrounded yeah. by these kind of like Darkness. Yeah, all yeah. black garbage bags. No, yeah. I mean, that's obviously purpose, um, you know, on purpose. Yeah. Um, and that is this part of Christopher that's so endearing. I mean, lots of things, but Christopher is so endearing because I love him. He's my favorite character. But... Um, you do, you, you like see, like I said, like in that moment where you think he's going to start writing this great script, mm -hmm. um, it is this kind of part of him that is good and hopeful and we see it come back at times, but yeah, it's, yeah. oh, Christopher. Um, was there other things with Christopher that you wanted to talk about during uh, his, uh, role in this episode? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting, like we get, I, I was trying to think about in the short time between us watching this and then talking about it, sometimes it's hard to like solidify my thoughts or something like that. But I was trying to think about the Glass Menagerie mm -hmm. bit and why that felt so, like what, what was it about that that was really like bothering him so much or he really didn't feel like he could access that scene like maybe it's because that character is so far from him like he can't he can't get the emotionality of characters who are like too far away from him or something like that like he needs to be able to tap into something real for him i'm not yeah. sure i'm not sure um i love that exchange between him and adriana about the gentleman caller right like right She's like, maybe it's because he's a gentleman. And she's like, and he's like, he's a douchebag. Um, I think also another thing that's interesting is him going to take care of the Dominic situation in the beginning mm -hmm. and how underwhelming it is compared to Furios yeah. dealing with it. And I mean, it's interesting. In the moment, it's violent. And it's, in the moment, it know, does seem violent. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, it's nothing compared to what Furio does. Yeah. And, and Tony realizes that. And you can see the kind of power structure of the family shifting right now. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, I want you to take care of it. And then to, to Christopher when they're at his house. But then he says, never mind looking over at Furio. And it's interesting, actually. Like, he looks at him. And realizes that there's an opportunity here. But the way that James Gandolfoni acts it is really interesting because he he looks at Furio, he has this realization and makes a decision. There's actually almost like a slight glimmer of like excitement or joy or something that comes to him in terms of him processing Furio doing it, knowing mm. how violent he would be. Mm. And we've seen him in Italy where he like not only beats up the kid right. who throws the firecrackers, but actually like hits the kid's mom. Yeah. Which then comes into play and yeah. during this scene where wow. he's actually like hitting Dominic's wife which is something and other girls and I mean yeah. just everybody yeah yeah also he's uh when during that scene when Furio goes in all black <laughs> during that violent scene just wanted to point out yeah but what about the outfit he's wearing at the party at the party Ooh, that's a great one yeah <laughs> a little bit more complicated it's actually interesting too seeing him at at Nuevo Vesuvio uh, where he's wearing all white, actually. I know that they're in the kitchen and that's what you wear if you're a chef mm -hmm, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But 
I do think it's interesting because this show has established blacks and whites reflecting different aspects of where people fall as characters. And we've seen this before with Artie playing with blacks and whites in terms mm-hmm. of what he's wearing. And that all white, I think there's something about it that's like as far away from the mob as possible. Even though like Furio like obviously isn't. But in that environment, there's something detached. Mm. Because, you know, you don't really see mob characters like wearing all whites or something. There's some- Even the mozzarella was white. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I think I think there is something there. There's like a detachment from the mob world and it's constantly bringing people in throughout the, the mm. series. But I think that there's something about like Artie as a character who deals with issues of being brought into that world and is affected by the toxicity of the decisions that Tony and his crew make. But there is something separate about him and that world, even though he is kind of pulled in. Mm. Just a thought. Mm. Cool thought. <laughs> um, Thanks. Where do you want to go next? I, I don't know. Well, maybe Melfi's role in this episode I found kind of interesting. I mean, that's definitely like one of the big things that happens here is that she brings Tony back for therapy. So right. they've kind of been teasing at that for a number of episodes. Right. And then that kind of unfolds over the episode as well. And again, I'm just like always amazed at how efficient the writing can be. There's yeah. actually not that many scenes, not that much dialogue, but we're brought kind of through a journey that brings us there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and I think that that, sorry, I'm sorry. No, but ahead. that also relates to this, this aspect of like being a child. And I think that that's something that's really central for Melfi as a character. Mm-hmm. And that's something that she's kind of working out and has worked out with Kupferberg during her sessions. That's kind of a realization. I don't know if she has worked it out with well, Kupferberg. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that she's identified as like a primary psychological driver for her totally. in terms of the way she acts. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that, you know, she turns to Kupferberg at one point and, you know, she calls him, she's like, you smug cocksucker, fuck you, walks out. You know, all of a sudden, that's Tony action. Like, she's almost, like, mm-hmm. turned into a Tony. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's childish. It's total, completely childish. But it's also, like, I don't interpret her as a character as typically being like that. Mm. Like, I think she's been drawn in. Well, just like Tony is acting out in all these weird ways. Well, not so weird for him, but Tony's acting out in these violent and angry ways and he's like confu- he tries to talk to Hesh about it which are hilarious scenes yeah um she's also acting out right there's something about the draw between these two characters they kind of rely on each other in some way or they feed off of each other maybe if you want to look at it more negatively but there is something kind of inevitable about that because they both are kind of unable to function properly without each other yeah Totally. Yeah. And there's something, too. I think that Kupferberg, even though sometimes he comes across as a bit of a joke of a psychoanalyst, there's something about that environment where now Melfi is forced to reckon with, deal with, reflect on, and think about all of these things that are going on. And I think that's challenging. And that Yeah. Well, she takes him seriously, even though he's a doofus like she like actually does not to cast any aspersion (laughs) she actually does like consider his questions that he asks even though they're stupid like who would who in the wizard of oz would tony be right who would he be the wizard i I guess oz himself 
but well that's actually interesting that she says the wizard because i mean my wizard of oz trivia is a little bit lacking but the wizard's actually not a powerful character right no he's just a man behind a curtain he's just a man behind a curtain so maybe actually that's interesting too that melfi's trying to get there Mm. to kind of get behind the curtain Mm. with him sure but there's something too where like she starts to regress to childlike behavior or emulate Tony's reactions mm-hmm. to these kinds of issues where I think she's also uncomfortable in that domain of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. So when she's there and she's dealing with, well, why do you feel this way? And maybe walking, realizing and coming to the ultimate realization that treating Tony is actually a toxic thing. I think it's interesting because there's a, there's a few things like, first of all, even just like that environment, the, the art on the walls, which is something that we've talked mm. about and looked at quite a bit, mm. it's very abstract. Like, there's nothing to be made of it. Mm. Like, that environment mm. is not clear-cut. Yeah. And I think that's scary for people. Yeah. And I think that she's trying to come to grips with it, but is regressing and kind of taking the easy route. In fact, even when she says, and here I go again, but just got to do it, she says, I'm thinking of taking Tony back, and there's a shot on her, and all we see is her wearing black. Mm. she's wearing actually like a two-tone thing mm. it's like a black blazer just, over white yeah. but it's interesting because even like that two-tone outfit is actually like what the mobsters tend to wear yeah it's like a combination of blacks and whites yeah and there's something i think like simplistic like it's actually regressing away from dealing with the complexities of these situations and it's clear cut and she's angry she leaves she's gonna take him back but i think there's actually a lot more mm-hmm no I mean, that's, I think that's the thing. Like, it's, it's what David Chase is always dealing with, right? Like, in order to decide to keep treating Tony or not, she kind of has to cut, like, she has to make a definitive decision, right? There's not, like, she can't, like, kind of treat Tony again, right? Like, she has to come to this very black and white um, understanding of what her role is in Tony's life and how she's going to deal with that, so. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting, like, the use of close-ups in this show mm. is really an well, indicator Tim, of something Tim, Tim important. Tim Van Patten is excellent at that. Yeah. Like, he does. Like, that's kind of part of his style, I think, yeah. too. Um, I think so. But it, it always indicates, like, an important exchange. Mm-hmm. So you have it with, like, Hesh and Tony. Mm-hmm. When Hesh says that his dad had panic attacks, and then, it, like, there's Tony's reaction mm-hmm. is, like, very key. Because and that's very important for him. Like, for him, that's, like explaining why this is happening mm-hmm. even well, it's though it's like a black and white answer to his problem yeah the reality right? is yeah. there's probably not that much closure but there's also some really interesting close-ups between melfi and kupferberg where kupferberg says like what are you not telling me right and she says i don't know and you're kind of yeah. going between them and i think it's you really see her kind of swallow yeah i feel like that scene that part of the therapy session is actually getting the closest to the core of it and there's like this lack of acknowledgement of the sexual energy between Mm -hmm. them. And she definitively says no, but there is something there that's being unspoken. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of wonder what's what it is. And what I also found interesting is that it ends up that line of query ends up with, he can be such a little boy sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then there's this quick edit to him in the car with Furio. Yeah. Talking about going in in to the. And so maybe it's complicated like that's not really acting like a little boy like he's like a destructive you know dangerous yeah, man sociopath, yeah yeah but at the same time that behavior there is something 
about it just in terms of like what he engages in it's very simplistic so yeah it's it's complicated but i also thought it was interesting because he can be such a little boy sometimes i don't think that that's the correct line of deduction like i think there's a lot more than that yeah i think that that's like a a dangerous oversimplification and i think that's maybe part of it too like in that psychoan psychoanalysis milieu or whatever Mm -hmm. there's this danger of overanalyzing and maybe like coming up with closure and answers for things that don't necessarily warrant it that are too multifactorial to have like a clear-cut answer yeah kind of like maybe what we're doing but it's something to be aware of totally um i also like how she says seeing him will be therapeutic for me Mm -hmm. yeah and cooper like kind of calls her out on that but that's like a pretty dangerous like he does call her out he says this is supposed to be therapeutic like this is your therapy yeah which is yeah but yeah i don't know what it is that draws her i mean i can i can hypothesize what it is that draws her back into that but in some ways it's kind of it's problematic i mean like i don't think there's i don't know what her intentions really well are yeah and i think that's something that you have to ask when you're going into psychoanalysis it's interesting that she asked tony when he finally comes back what at the are end your of the goals episode, here? and he says to direct my power and anger against those that deserve it i wrote that down too yeah. which is interesting because there's actually like an irony in his intention because clearly he deserves it because his actions are making him feel this way it's not as simple as his dad has panic attacks, so he has panic attacks. It's not something that's necessarily hereditary. I feel like he's not owning up the things that he does in the world and that it's kind of building up underneath the surface to have mm. an impact on him. Mm. So anyway, I found an irony in that. But that's also, in terms of analysis, a very like damaging and kind of violent goal to have. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about well, their goals. Also, They're all yeah. flawed. He also wants to be in total control, which is a very like black and white thing to yeah. want, right? And really like and she says that's impossible. Yeah. It was interesting too when she we she just, when Tony tells her what he was doing with Furio and she says, you know, were you did you want to be the one giving the beating mm-hmm. or taking it? Which, if for nothing else, I thought was interesting just in reestablishing the power dynamic. Yeah. By looking at the way that Tony responds to that. Well, because he, like, gets his kicks out of, like, he was getting whatever, like, turned on by telling her what he was really doing. Right? Yeah. You see his, like, smug face, and he's, like, looking for that reaction, and she does not give that to him. No. She, like, turns it back on him. So Yeah, and I feel like that power dynamic just doesn't exist otherwise. Like, mm-hmm. there's nobody who's questioning him at that level. Mm-hmm. Or is, like, above him in that way. Yeah. Where he's going to be examined and thought about. Yeah. It was interesting, too. Like, we've talked about Cigar as a symbol of being in control. Mm. So when he's there waiting for Furio, he's smoking a cigar and he's kind of in his element. And then he gets the call from Melfi. As soon as he gets the call, he takes the cigar out of his mouth yeah. and he doesn't smoke it again. So there's well, like he a... does when Furio gets back in the car. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. But anyway, it's it's interesting because like there is a loss of control when he enters into that domain. What about her kind of getting wasted before she calls him? Right. And reaching for that glass of wine during the call. Yeah. Well, and she was acting kind of like a giggly schoolgirl also yeah. for a lot of this. Like kind of like she was acting when she said toodle fucking new yeah. or whoever last episode. Yeah. So maybe she's not confronting her issues, even though she has figured them out and has the benefit of, yeah, you know, training and expertise in this world. Those who can't do teach, maybe. 
<laughs> That's a nice thing for somebody in education to say. Yeah. What else? Well, I like. I kind of want to contrast like the Melfi scenes, I guess, with the uh, scenes where Tony goes to Hesh, mm-hmm. kind of for therapy, right? Yeah. We have two scenes. The first one where he just kind of shows up at Hesh's place. Um, and that's when he finds out about his dad having panic attacks, yeah. you know. But they have this um, this great scene, right? Like, he's talking about his anger. And then he's like, I had this fucking weird dream. And he's like, I was wearing a suit and shoes and I was on the beach, right? <laughs> Hesh is talking about God knows what. And they're getting they're a having... garden hose up your butt. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's talking about this article that was in the New York Times that Tony then references later on to Melfi. That's right. That's without right. any context, but about how like these responses to fear show up on a brain scan, right? Yeah. Like it like actually like shows up in your brain. Yeah. So I was going to think about that a little bit too, but... You have Hesh, like, just talking about something completely different, and Tony's like, do you want to hear about this fucking dream or not? Right. And then we don't hear about it. The scene right. cuts from there. <laughs> um, and it's kind of the same with Melfi, right? Like, we have her, we have this dream being replayed from last episode, or not last episode, the episode before, mm-hmm. right? We actually have, like, a visual replay of it. And we have Melfi re- telling it again to Cooperberg, right? So they've been, like, coming back to this dream as something very important. Um, I don't know what Tony's dream was we do see him have dreams on beaches and things like that later on yeah um but i and then we have another scene with him and hesh later on where they're sitting in hesh's fancy room and again like they're having these two separate conversations with each other yeah yeah they're really just talking over each other they're just kind of dictating their own stories yeah Um, and it's interesting because actually they're both exasperated by it yeah. Like, they're both exasperated by the other. Hesh is there. Like, he wants to sleep. He's putting in little comments. When Hesh starts talking, you see Tony. I think the last scene is him, like, kind of, like, slumping down. Yeah. The same way he did to Vin McKazian when he was telling him about his problems. Yeah. So neither of them are interested in the other or their issues. Yeah. They just, like, like to talk. Yeah. Which also establishes how Tony does need to air these grievances totally. and issues with somebody. And that Hesh is the closest thing he has, but clearly, like, that's not an appropriate... No realm for it it's just like not working no. um we have a little bit with uh pussy mm-hmm. so we see him a couple times behaving suspiciously so of course yeah. he's been kind of like not given this promotion that mm-hmm. polly's been given right so we have you know tony telling this to polly he's saying you know he makes that joke about Polly leaving an empty box of Malamars or something like that. And anyways, um, and so like, so Polly kind of gets this promotion. Furio is put into this um, system on the same level as Pussy, mm-hmm. right? So like they both report to Polly. And yeah. Still. Um, and then we have a scene later on where they're at Vesuvio's again, Polly and Pussy and then Furio comes to sit down with them. And then Johnny Sack comes in, mm-hmm. and Polly asks Pussy to leave, but yeah. not Furio. Right. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Like I don't know why, like if they're why they would have let Furio stay there for that conversation. It is interesting. Um, but then we have like at the party, like Furio's welcome party. I guess yeah. it is. Like we have Pussy trying to get some information out of Silvio, and he's like, "We'll talk later." Yeah. Um. We, and then we have this scene with him and Skip, yeah, the FBI agent. And they're both kind of complaining about 
poor them. They've yeah. been passed over by these younger guys or yeah. these new guys. Um, they're both kind of like confiding in each other, connecting yeah. to each other. Well, that was that. an interesting scene too because they're commiserating over like a milkshake. Yeah. Which directly contrasts the scene of that you were just talking about at Vesuvio like around Italian food. Mm. They're now in this like American environment. Mm, interesting. So I feel like it's like <laughs> pussies kind of like movement towards getting outside of the mob and being affiliated with Skip over his mob family mm. is kind of like taking a step there. Like mm. he's in this new environment mm. that's actually like foreign from the Italian world. Yeah. And uh, it's actually unusual to see those characters, you know, kind of like in a place like that. I mean, there, there are scenes in diners and mobs and stuff, but I mm. feel like it's like connecting pussy to Skip in a way. Like yep. they're bonding over food, which is something that happens a lot in this show. Yeah. And it's not Italian. No. Um, we also have Pussy not standing up to That's greet right. Johnny Sack, yeah. which is weird. I don't know. Yeah. Like, and he said he wasn't going to anyway. But you really, we have to be questioning why and if it's whether or not yeah. he's wearing a wire. or. Yeah. Um, just the only other scene of people eating. Well, actually, we get a couple. And I know you want to talk about one of them because you said it while we were watching. But we have a couple scenes of food. Is there some colorful food? There's some food. I'll, I'll talk about mine first. Um, one of our first scenes, right after we have, like, Christopher's first scene um, with the acting class and stuff yeah. like that, after they go to the tanning salon, um, we have Tony sitting on the couch dipping meat into mayonnaise. I miss that. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, like, gross. Like, into a, into a like, Hellman's mayonnaise Sounds pretty jar. Good. <laughs> it was disgusting. That's when he's seeing this stuff on the news about himself. Right. Yelling. Um, <laughs> and he's yelling to nobody. But you had some food. There was a lot of orange juice. There was a lot of oranges, yeah. And and then, of course, in Christopher's acting scene, there's a guy carrying a bag of oranges. That's right. Well, th yeah, that was that was really An invis invisible orange. Omar <laughs> carrying yeah. his bag of oranges. But that's funny when Chris says, you know, you're dropping your fucking oranges. Yeah. And it's... It's, for me, that was also indicative of, like, his aptitude as an actor to mm -hmm. notice something small like that. Like mm -hmm. you said with the zipper, like, he is able to put himself in that role. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of oranges, you mm -hmm. know, from that scene. There's Tony drinking orange juice near the beginning shortly before he goes over to Janice's house where Richie's sitting there with orange juice. Or mm -hmm. not sitting, but he's with orange it's juice. On the counter. And he's making eggs, which... I think we talked to, I talked about recently, I talked about yeah. that for the first time, like this show starting to introduce eggs as like <laughs> their godfather's oranges. Right. So to see, for me, if nothing else, to see Richie with orange juice behind him making eggs, coming from a scene with orange juice on the counter, there's just something very foreboding about that. Yeah. There's just something that's a little bit off and actually a little bit menacing because they do tend to relate eggs and oranges with death. So you have to kind of question like, if that relationship between Tony and Richie, which is clearly already strained, is going to reach a breaking point. Or maybe Janice and Richie are going to be so happy and live happily ever after. Yeah. Just, you know, buy an orange farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Things are going to go super well. That's, I think, what it's telling me. Yeah. I think so. That's typically what happens in this show. That's yeah. always a very safe guess. Yeah, totally. Um... I have some stray observations. What do you have? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Just some stray stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting, Tony, imposing the idea of the mozzarella maker on Artie when he's there. Like, right. 
again, just like the dominance and the lack of regard for Artie and his expertise to just kind of like come in and tell him what to do. Um, we've talked in earlier episodes about people getting involved in things that they really know nothing about, but kind of having confidence in it. And for Tony to kind of just come in and tell Artie, you know, how we should be running his business is interesting, especially in, you know, regards to not paying his bill. So there's like a very kind of like damaging relationship, like the power structure is so weird and Mm -hmm. Artie isn't really capable of responding to it either. Mm-hmm. Like, he has to kind of just, like, go along with all of these things. So you can kind of see, like, the dominance of Tony where he stands. Even though, like, in the mob family, there's, like, a very concrete hierarchy, and we know where he stands, even outside his dominance still exists. Um, I wanted to talk about Mitch the Porsche salesman. Mitch the Porsche salesman. What a great character. He's great. I wish he would come back. I hope he does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what a hilarious character. And the way that Tim Van Patten, like, uses those kind of, like, close-ups on him is really funny. Right. Like, when he, like, does his, he, like, looks down and then looks up to start his scenes, like, very dramatically. (laughs) Um, when he's talking about, you know, he's like, oh, he's written a couple scripts, but nothing's been bought yet. He's just, like, the epitome of, like, American TV. I just feel like, or like, I don't know, like this, like kind of empty, materialistic. Um, hmm. I don't know. He's great. Right. He's really great. Um, I just thought he was kind of a dweeb. No, <laughs> he's like, he, well, he is. He's a total dweeb. But he, in that scene where they have to say like A and B to each other or whatever. Right. Um, I like all those characters in the acting class. Actually, they're great. They're all great. Omar is a great. Yeah, that's character. it. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it. It's over. Um, but when they have to do this A and B thing, like. I don't know what like what it is that Chris interpreted from the way he said he does this kind of like dramatic look up and says, hey, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also like in in just again, it's more of a stray observation about Christopher in this acting Mm -hmm. class. Like I love how Adriana kind of like in terms of again and in terms of this like therapy relationship, Adriana was spot on with talking about how like maybe like maybe this is something that you're grappling with, like with your father and him dying young and like so she really hits the nail on the head pretty well. And then Chris turns it around and does what we've seen Tony do where he flips it in an aggressive way against her. He says, Whoa, did you learn that taking people's orders at the restaurant? Yeah. So it's this like diversion tactic of using cruelty. Yeah. To yeah escape actually dealing with things i thought it was interesting like when he they really like establish how out of place christopher is throughout Mm -hmm. the whole acting class when he walks in late and he comes in with like one sheet of paper and everybody has like books and is ready and is sitting there listening doesn't have a pencil or pen and has to ask for it like i mean some of them are obvious like you know you can just tell when you're watching that he's asking for the pencil because it's like written in but yeah just the things like he's so ill-equipped to deal with that yeah but everyone there kind of likes him yeah until he punches mitch in the face he's talented yeah yeah and they're like supportive of him i think they just think he's kind of like this crazy wild card because when he just like storms out too you know you see people kind of like exasperated yeah like there he goes again um i thought you were going to comment on the whorehouse that on the front of it it says the hottest tan in town I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) People making themselves darker. No, I had nothing to say about that. Do you have something to say about that? I don't. Mm. The color tan. No, that's not it. That's not what I, that's not it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's between black and white. I would like to comment, though, on the uh, <laughs> boat names. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, so Stugatz, which is this kind of, like, crass Italian term, I thought it was interesting. So when he goes over and, like, grabs the Russian dude's testicles and comes back and he's walking by and the people are watching the boat that they're on, that the family is watching from, it's called Thank God. And I thought it was interesting that, like, Thank God is parked right next to Stugatz. Right. And they're watching, like... What's the name of the Russian boat? Uh, Okay, so here's the problem. I wrote down a name of another boat, and I found it interesting, but my writing's really bad. It's something like... Where is it? Bang, bong. Oh. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Her. It was something like hurt her or something. But it wasn't. It was like that. Anyway. <laughs> so my, my comments are lacking on that one because I don't know what the first word is. <laughs> but I can comment on thank God. It's impossible. You'll never figure it out. My writing is indecipherable. But that's okay. But thank God. I mean, there is just like such like a like a clash. There's such like a juxtaposition between like Tony and the people around him. Yeah. Too and, bad you don't have the third one. Yeah. It's an amazing point. <laughs> and it's pretty much the key to the entire show. I think so. I'm sure... Everything would just make a lot more sense. So maybe watch it again. You can let us know what the third boat is called. Yeah. (laughs) Buck, buck her. Something like that. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. That's it. Let us know what the boat's name is. Yeah. If you have any thoughts about what tan means, that's great too. I mean, what doesn't? Lots. Okay. Well, see you next time. Okay. Bye.